I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. Since the dawn of civilization, the greatest monuments created by mankind have been celebrated as wonders of the world. And like the days of the week and deadly sins, there are always seven of them. The wonders of the ancient world included the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Great Pyramid of Giza, and the tremendous Lighthouse of Alexandria. In the centuries that have followed, further lists have been drawn up, recognizing more modern wonders, the Empire State Building in New York, the Great Wall of China. Other magnificent sevens salute natural phenomena, such as the Grand Canyon and the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the drummer Nick Mason, CBE, part of one of the all-time great rock bands, Pink Floyd. From the psychedelic 60s onwards, Pink Floyd have been critically and commercially hugely successful in Britain and around the world creating innovative music and albums such as The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, The Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall, and A Saucer Full of Secrets, the name of their second album and the name of Nick's current band. Pink Floyd's tremendous success was earned in part by their intense songwriting skills, in part by their unsurpassed production values in the studio and in live performances, but of course mainly by the exquisite percussion and drumming skills of Nick Mason himself the only ever-present member of Pink Floyd, which over the years have sadly known their fair share of personnel changes, splits, divisions, disputes, and indeed deaths. Now, Nick, so far there have been no overlaps or duplications in the wonders chosen by the various guests I've interviewed on this podcast, but you're the first who is another guest's wonder, or any part of it, Omid Jalili having selected Pink Floyd as one of his wonders of the world. How do you enjoy the adulation of being a rock god? Well, it doesn't, uh, I suppose it doesn't really impinge on my life that much of the, of the time. Uh, the interesting thing is that uh, obviously it's, uh, being part of a, a very successful group is one thing, but I'm not a proper, what I'd call a proper pop star, so that I can um, still go into Sainsbury's without uh, the place turning into mayhem, whereas I'm not so sure that. Mick Jagger, should he wish to go into Sainsbury's? I'm sure he's more of a Waitrose man myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, look, in that connection, I want to check out something which I think is now becoming something of of an urban myth. Uh, And I can't remember if I've ever checked it out with you before, but... I remember uh, Frank Skinner telling me a story that he, and the the story is spoiled by discussing it with you, uh, sitting at next to you at dinner and um he's a comedian obviously but was doing a bit of music and you mentioned oh you played in the band and he started to give you advice about 
where to go to <laughs> in pubs and things. And he, he said, oh, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll put a word in for you. What's your name? Nick? Oh, yeah. Uh, what's your band called? And you say, oh, uh, Pink Floyd. And then the office is floored by that. But I heard that story being told on the radio just the other day. But Frank Skinner wasn't in it. Somebody else uh, was having this conversation with you. So either okay. lots of people do this with you or it is Frank Skinner, or it never was Frank. So can you clear that up? Does that, do you recognize that story? I do completely. And it was Frank Skinner. Yes. And uh, yeah, we did. Ha I can't remember the exact conversation, but it ran something, uh, something like that, that uh, he didn't actually uh, inquire as to which band I was in before um, giving me order. <laughs> It was probably some sort of suggestion as to how to handle sort of riders or some contractual issue. <laughs> I th the bit I heard the other day was if it is Frank Skinner, whoever it is, is in the conversation asks you, well, do you play in pubs? And you said, yeah, used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, it didn't go on. It didn't go on very long. But, <laughs> but you were obviously nicely uh, stringing him along. But look, as anyone will know who follows music, will know you've played around the world and lots and lots of places. So when you when i came to me asking you for seven wonders of the world uh, did did you have a sort of um, rolodex for, would that be the right concept of great places you'd been to or played in that you might have selected for for all these wonders or some of these well, wonders well not not really places for for wonders i mean we have pl played in uh, in a number of exotic places and i did choose one of them as a, yes. as a wonder. All right, okay, let's um, get on I, to your first wonder then. Well, I, I did choose as one of my wonders uh, the city of Venice. Yes. Um, but it was not particularly because we'd, we'd played there so much as that uh, it's one of the most extraordinary, enduring cities mm. um, that, that, uh, that I could think of. And, um, I, and I still have great affection for it. The fact that we played there was... Uh, maybe just adds a little, a, a little extra to it. Well, let's let's discuss Venice then, because obviously that could be uh, on a, on a list of wonders, um, and it does does feature on uh, several lists of wonders because it is such an extraordinary city. I suppose even people who haven't been there have got a very strong image of it because it is built on the. Well, I think it's built on islands, but built around canals and and on the water, and it's got fantastic architecture. So I assume those are all things that uh, feature in why you've put it on your list of wonders. Yes, absolutely. And uh, of course, uh, although I'm reasonably well known as a, a petrol head, the extraordinary thing about it is that it doesn't have any cars and that's allowed it to remain intact, well, apart from the odd flood, for centuries, literally. Yes. Well, you mentioned a petrol head. Now, yes, people do know you from your uh, motor vehicle you know, your love of motor vehicles, perhaps we'll come on to that uh, later. So why do you, do you think that is a factor in why you've chosen Venice? Because it's, uh, it's just a bit different from uh, traffic and noise and pollution of that sort that you, you otherwise are involved in. Uh, yes. I, I mean, there's no doubt that one of the great attractions of, of Venice is the atmosphere that's created by the fact that it doesn't have uh, a lot of cars with their engines running and horns going and so on. Um, and it has probably, uh, it must be about the most atmospheric city in the world. And have you been there a lot, you know, at different times of the year? Because it's obviously a, a charming place in the summer, except it's very full of tourists um, and, you know, and, and crowds generally in normal times. 
yes, and I have to say most of my visits have been in, in high seasons. But even so, uh, in fact, the last time I think I was there, we, um, we'd arranged to – we actually went for a gondola ride at uh, – about 11 o'clock at night, which was quite extraordinary, and I thoroughly recommend it. Very different to going out during during the day. So this was a romantic gondola, I'm assuming. It depends who you're with, but uh, a romantic <laughs> gondola. <laughs> and, <laughs> that could be tricky. No, I was with my wife. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> you certainly are in this, this version of events. Um, <laughs> But of course, you've got to have the income of a rock god to be able to afford a gondola ride, um, especially at eleven o'clock at night. But uh, uh, maybe that's something that people. Well, are... we, we did have, um, yeah, I, I, the gondoliers are slightly still, I think, um, open-minded about whether whether Pink Floyd playing in Venice was a good or bad idea. It was uh, it, it was quite a remarkable thing. We we actually played on a raft moored off St. Mark's Square. So and when was point, this? Gondoliers... Remind, us, remind us when that, that concert was. Oh, the two, the, no, that's really challenging. It was about 20 years ago. And were they worried, was it were the gondoliers worried about the uh, loss of business to them or was Venetians worried that uh, the sound of Pink Floyd might bring down uh, the Campanile again or, or, or what? Well, opinion was divided. There was certainly some people who thought it was a brilliant idea, other people who thought it might damage the uh, the fabric of the buildings, which it definitely didn't do. Um, and then the gondoliers thought that they maybe should ask for extra money and threatened to blow their whistles loudly if we didn't give it to them. Um, but actually, since we were running about sort of 7,000 watts of PA, we weren't too worried about the... Uh, about the whistles. And anyway, I think by the end of it, all of them had got private, rich private uh, audience members to um, to book them. So I think they did pretty well out of it. Well, I mean, I and you've played in such an extraordinary um, large circumstances, but would, would that would you rate that performance in Venice as as a highlight, or, or is it the time when you're doing those huge shows, you know, whether it's, you know, in Battersea Power Station or Venice or somewhere in America, were they all big or was that a fantastic thing to perform in Venice? Um, it was it was very special to perform in Venice. I mean, it was very different. But the fact of the matter is that um, the size of the venue is not necessarily uh, relevant to the to the quality of it almost. And in some ways, there's still enormous delight in playing um, the Half Moon in Putney, actually. Yes, so as a sort of backup band to Frank Skinner's Ukulele Act or something like that, you'd still, <laughs> you'd still get enjoyment out of that. <laughs> I'm Just, not here looking for work supporting <laughs> Frank Skinner, OK? Well, I mentioned uh, you, you're, you've, you've started a new band. Perhaps you should just um, tell us about that. Where, where do you play with that? Um, well, we, funnily enough, we did start at the Half Moon a couple of years ago. Uh, and usually some of the nicer rock and roll theatres, uh, the Beacon Theatre in New York, which I really like, and the Olympia in Paris. Um, basically, it's a band put together uh, with a sort of mixed group of friends uh, who are, I have to say, great musicians. And we're playing very early Pink Floyd catalogue, which is great fun because it's less well known than uh, some of the dark side pieces and the wall pieces and so on. 
and it's been really just such fun to go out and play to play to an audience. I mean, obviously, the last year has been a, a write-off, but we're hoping we'll eventually get back out on the road. So you've you, you've put together a source full of secrets, and you and that's an interesting concept to go back and play early stuff of your own your own band. <laughs> Well, yeah, to, to revisit it and revisit it with different musicians. Um, and, and they're a, a wonderfully mixed bunch. There's uh, Lee Harris, who was with the Blockheads, um, Don Beacon, who was uh, or still is part of the Orb, um, Guy Pratt, who's worked with just about everyone, uh, but for 30 odd years uh, took over when Roger Waters left, um, and Gary Kemp from Spandau Ballet, who was a I think a bit of a surprise to a number of people. But, Did you just uh, happen to bump into him, or, or you, you, you friends? Or? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we were friends, and he said he'd really be interested to join in. So sadly, there were no um, auditions. I'm fond of saying the only audition would have been for the drummer, but I got the job anyway because it's my band. And that's you back back on the roads. As you obviously can't get enough of it. It's not like you're you're sitting back and just enjoying life um, from you know, previous record sales, you still want to be out there uh, banging the drum literally for live music. Well, very sadly, it seems to be that uh, if you haven't grown out of showing off by the time you're about 70, you're probably never going to do it. So, yeah, the, the, a happy time is get, getting out there. We've got to make some progress through these wonders. I just Before we leave Venice, though, obviously Venice is supremely the, the sort of place which is possibly eating itself in terms of it's such a big draw, such a big tourist attraction for, for people flying in, people coming in in cruise boats, you know, this this could apply to lots of places, especially in Italy, that they stop being real places. They become more and more like a Disneyland where it is just a place for... Does that uh, worry you, not as a rock star, but as a as somebody who likes visiting places in the world? You know, you go to a village uh, one... Yeah. yeah. No, I think it, it, it is a real worry. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's not only Venice, it's uh, Florence as well. Yeah. And every um, sort of hilltop city... And village yes. in, in in Italy, where used to be a, a couple of shops that you could buy food in, and uh, and if you go there ten years later, those shops have become tourist shops, and you have to go to a supermarket twenty miles away to buy your food. It stopped being the village that you wanted to go and visit. You can't you can't visit the thing you want to visit. Yeah, well, and and uh, I don't think you can move now in Tuscany without either coming across a film crew making a movie about living in Italy. <laughs> Um, or uh, people far people farming and growing their own vegetables and then writing books about it. The city of Venice sets the official hire rate for gondolas at 80 euros for 30 minutes. But not many people know that that same rate, 80 euros, covers six people in the same boat. So if you don't mind sharing, you can split the cost six ways. Ahead of us is one of the most photographed sites in the whole of Venice, the Bridge of Sighs so-called because it was the walkway that condemned men used to leave the city's courts. Nowadays, the only thing to sigh about is the amount of time it'll take you to queue up to get a look inside. All right, so that, that's Venice. Obviously, um, you know, very historic place and um, with notable events in its history, including uh, Pink Floyd uh, performing there. And oh, and don't look now—that's fantastic film. But but um, and all the history of the churches and the and St Mark's and uh, the uh, it, its dominant uh, time. Uh, but let's go to somewhere more uh, up to date, really. Well, for your second wonder, 
Uh, I'm vaguely aware of what Apple Park is, but not not hugely so. This is this is built by, created by the Apple Corporation. Uh, we're familiar with their computers, their their smartphones, and so forth. Is it just a a corporate headquarters? Is it a corporate town? W- what is it? I think it's a. You could say it was a corporate city. The way it operates and um, uh, the the number of people who work there. If it was in the UK, it would almost be a small county rather than a, a town. I mean, I am a fan of uh, Apple products, and I think what they've achieved is is quite extraordinary. I mean, it's now a rather frightening operation, but of course, when it started, we all thought it was absolute cutting edge. I mean, it still is cutting edge, but uh, when one looks at um, early sort of early Sinclair computers or whatever. The whole Apple operation is, is it's extraordinary. Uh, but it's quite an ecological setup, Apple Park. It's not just uh, concrete. It's, it's. Uh, I, I, I have. I assume you've been there, have you? Uh, no, not yet. Um, I was invited, to, uh, in fact, a year and a half ago to go. And of course, with uh, COVID, that all came to a grinding halt. But it's still very much on my my wish list. Well, I um, I uh, assume you could do a concert there either source of all secrets or i mean i've been carefully vague about my the tense i've been using about pink floyd because i'm never sure with rock bands whether they they've come or they've gone or they're in hiatus or they're definitely in the past but uh, you could read well you've, you've explained exactly the status of pink floyd <laughs> yeah <laughs> i i wait with interest to find yeah. out whether we uh, whether we exist or not some yeah at some point in the future so if, if uh, obviously not Steve Jobs, but if somebody at Apple Park said we'd like to have a concert that celebrates some of um, Apple's values and Pink Floyd would be a perfect band, uh, you might reform or get the band together at any rate. For I mean, I've, I've, my bag is already packed. I'm ready to go. It's a matter of just persuading Roger or David, or Roger and David, to... Uh, to join in. We'll look forward to that. Um, but you mentioned Apple Park is designed by Norman Foster, and I believe uh, he was a. you were taught by Norman Foster. Well, yes. Um, rather curiously, um, before I fell in with a bad lot and ended up in a rock band, um, I trained as an architect. I did four and a half years at Regent Street Poly, now more grandly called the University of Westminster. And uh, during that period, they brought in some sort of young guns as part-time lecturers, and they included uh, both uh, Sir Norman Foster and um, Lord Richard Rogers, which shows that there really is a future in architecture, not just rock and roll. Uh, Then over the years, our our paths have occasionally crossed, and in particular with Norman, uh, we actually started talking originally about... um, a scheme he was involved in with the V&A, which uh, never really ac- actually took off, but we're now hoping to get on with uh, another project. You said you studied for f- four and a half years. To be, I, I know architecture is quite a long course, but that's quite a lot of study. Uh, so you were keen to be an architect. No, I really enjoyed it. And actually, it's, it's a brilliant training for um, 
for the music industry, you know, and for what we ended up doing as a band, because it's a lovely mixture of technology and art. Yeah. And were you all there uh, at the same architectural school? Uh, three of us were uh, in DA1, Design and Architecture, first year. Uh, myself, Roger Waters and Richard Wright. So how is it that uh, you got distracted into, I mean, this is Pink Floyd 101, but how, how, how was it you were distracted so much into rock music that you, you kissed goodbye to architecture? I suppose you presumed forever once you started performing in Oxford Street or, or in, you know, in the pubs in Putney or wherever. Not, not quite. Um, I, uh, as I say, I, I fell in with Roger and Rick and we were persuaded to, we'd all played a little bit before we were uh, at the Poly. And someone asked us if we could um, play a song they'd written to a publisher. And so we played this song to the publisher, and the publisher said um, that he thought the song was okay, but he thought the band was truly dreadful. And uh, I think that maybe fired us up a little bit to um, to, ca- to carry on. Certainly, that's the sort of thing that would sort of get Roger going. And, and so the, we started we started working really i i had a, the benefit of a really great year master at the time i said i can't keep i can't keep getting my friends to sign the register while i'm up in leeds playing at some all nighter rave and uh, he said well why don't you take a year off so, so he sort of invented the gap year a long time before we'd really got there and um so i i left ostensibly for a year and I've just because uh, he said well you know you can come back on the course just start this last year again uh, and sadly I've never managed to get back there yet but it's, it's it could be open to you there's a there's an option there if it all goes horribly wrong yeah as long as um as long as I can still get my Zimmer frame up the front steps and and was it always drums for you or were you ever tempted into other musical instruments uh, no it was drums I I I sort of joined, or a few of us started a band when I was about 13 or 14. And um, basically, the guy who started it already had a guitar, so that wasn't an option. And I was damned if I was going to be a bass player. So uh, I announced that I would be a drummer. For £7, 10 shillings, I went to a shop called Foots in Denman Street and bought, bought a kit, which... Of course, wasn't a, a sort of full kit, but it was a pair of bongos and a bass drum and a snare. It wouldn't have really gone anywhere if it hadn't been for the whole sort of rock music, late 60s thing. I, it was actually seeing Ginger Baker playing with Cream was the moment when I thought, do you know what, that's what I'd like to do. Well, I was going uh, to mention drummers in that, that context. Uh, I've interviewed uh, Ginger Baker a couple of times and... Uh... And, um, and and enjoyed it, and uh, and of course watched. There's a fantastic documentary made about him when he physically assaults the person interviewing him, drawing <laughs> blood. <laughs> um, he, uh, <laughs> no, yeah, that, that's uh, quite something. If you interview Ginger, he can be uh, he can be really good. But, yeah, uh, the documentaries. I have to say, this is a bit of a, a sort of red herring, hmm. but. Um, I thought it was a really good documentary because at the end of the day, you sort of worked out that what he couldn't deal with was people leaving. Yes. Whenever they left, he would absolutely go berserk. 
<laughs> as you say, I mean, the, the actual title of the movie is Beware of Mr. Baker, He Broke My Nose, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, um, that's him on a good day. Yes. <laughs> well, without straying too much into my experience, I, uh, as a, I do a program on Radio 4 called Loose Ends, and on one particular episode, I interviewed Sinead O'Connor and Ginger Baker in the one program, and it remains, I th- and we, I got on well with both of them. And uh, I don't always, I don't have an unblemished track record with the uh, rock stars, but that's, uh, that was my, <laughs> that was a high point. <laughs> in my interviewing uh, career. But so that Ginger Baker, um, that you also think of somebody like Keith Moon, those those sort of um, wild men of, uh, of of the drum kit. But then there are other ones, and uh, you perhaps are more of the sort of Charlie Watts, the, 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 the better behaved, the reliable ones. Is there, a, is there a sort of drumming school you have to go to? You have to decide which, which one you're going to be. You're going to be sitting at a drum kit stoned out of your mind or drunk or um, you know up all night you know, going all over the place, or have you got to be the steady one holding the, the whole thing together, holding the beat together? Well, yes. I mean, you, everyone makes a choice as to what they want to do. The, there's not a committee who f- are formed to allocate whether you should be a wild man or a um, or something a, a little more uh, temperate. But anyway, when you got going in the 1960s, there did seem to be something in the air uh, that that allowed all sorts of people to come together. I know people still do it, but it was it was a fantastic time. Um, perhaps influenced by your third wonder, who is um, a supreme uh, performer, Bob Dylan. Uh, so, h- how did he loom in your thoughts from the word go, or has he, have you just grown to like him, or or what? No, I chose Bob Dylan because I think he is a truly truly unique talent and and uh, did something that really no one else in in popular music has ever achieved in terms of a huge output of really sort of important songs i mean they work as they work musically but the lyric content is so much more sophisticated you know in bulk than really almost anyone else there are other great songs and there are other good writers but Nothing on the scale of uh, Bob Dylan. And were you were you aware of him from the word go? Because um, he's, I mean, so I'm so, maybe slightly ahead of you in in terms of uh, performing, but not much. I, no, I, I think uh, I certainly bought the first Dylan album, and um, <laughs> and we were conscious of of uh, you know the, the whole thing of um, him being shouted at for appearing on stage with electric guitars. I think they've even traced now the guy in the audience who shouted Judas. Yeah, that's in Manchester, him. wasn't it? Yeah. In, you know, in this country. So, um, well, because he went from, I know, an interest in pop music, rock music to folk music, and then went into, you know, back into using electric uh, guitars, electric music. And that's, as you say, he's, he spanned such a lot of things. Yeah, I, I think he really is head and shoulders really above most performers in terms of, of output and and just moves so easily really between all these sort of genres. And I'm I not quite sure how the, the world of music works, but have you bumped into him? Have you performed on stage with him? Have you gigged with him? Met him in, in passing, I think more or less. I think what uh, American presidents call a brush past. 
And would he acknowledge you or Pink Floyd? Would he say, oh, yeah, I love you guys? Or, or is he just... I hope, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope he would, Clive. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, he comes across sometime, and I mean, I'm a big admirer as well, but he's, he's not always the most communicative of people. So I don't know, what, no, is he a bit more relaxed with, uh, with no. other performers? Well, well, obviously, you have a special skill in dealing with tricky people. <laughs> and... Um, well, apart from the Bee Gees. And so uh, I look forward to, to you um, doing something on Bob. It's time once again for Theme Time Radio Hour. And today we're going to talk about the endless grey rhythms of asphalt that crisscross this country. We're talking about where the rubber meets the road on steel. We're going to climb aboard the four-wheeled horseless carriage because today's theme is cars. Automobiles, coupes, race cars, the pickup, the van, jalopies, jeeps, junkers, the station wagon, the roadster, the notchback, the convertible, hardtops, classics, Pontiacs, Cadillacs, Buicks, lowriders, SUVs, and other assorted vehicles. So strap yourself in, put the pedal to the metal, and listen. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So anyway, Bob Dylan earns his right to be in your list of uh, seven wonders. The next one that I have that you've selected, uh, which is less obvious, but uh, interesting nonetheless, is catamarans. Now, why catamarans? I think it's one of the most interesting things that I've seen in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years. Um, is the idea of a sailing boat that can actually travel at something like 40 or 50 miles an hour when there's only 15 knots of wind at that given moment. That is still really quite mysterious. So how, how is that? What is it about a catamaran? Catamaran is obviously a double-hulled boat. Yeah, uh, but it's, how, it's how, more to do with this business of, of uh, the, the science of how, how sails work. It's actually the science of aerodynamics because at one point I thought that what I'd choose would be a, a, a Formula One car, and in fact, just one specific part of it, which is the front, the front wing, which is a, a remarkable piece of engineering, but does something rather similar in that, that it, it takes the, uh, the the passage through the air and and makes it work in a way that um, would have been unthinkable a hundred years ago. 
as I say, the, this perfect example of how sales can be made to actually uh, induce these sort of speeds from uh, relatively mild winds is is probably it's, uh, more, almost more interesting than some of the other science and technology that's uh, that's that's gone because um, because wind is still such an easy way of uh, finding power. Well, now you you mentioned that you've got a, a well known interest in cars, uh, which might have been uh, your wonder. But some, if we extend the concept of the speed of a catamaran, and you, you've already touched on this, you obviously do like traveling around at at pace. What sort of cars do you do that in? It's it's not the speed of the thing. I, I like the technology and the way it works. I mean, I I like motor racing, but I'm happy to race cars that they don't have to be the fastest cars available. Uh, it's more it's more about um, getting getting the best out of them, I guess, rather than rather than straight line. Certainly, rather than straight line speed, which in itself is is not particularly interesting. But if you use the word race, then that does imply you are trying to go faster than somebody else, or or, or am I getting the wrong end of the stick? You you just want to get round the course. Uh, no, you are trying to go faster than somebody else, but um, it's sort of relative. It can be. It's it's exciting to to win a race in a De Chaveau Citroen as it is in something that'll do 240 mile an hour. But I don't think you race in De Chaveau Citroens, do you, uh, No, Nick? not very often, Claude, you're right. <laughs> so what okay. sort of, you've got a collection of cars, haven't you? Yeah. And, so what and, sort of cars are in your collection? But they're racing cars, you know, from different eras. So that uh, I've got a Bugatti from 1920, and then Maserati from 1950, and then up to um, cars that I drove at Le Mans in the 80s. Well, if we just go back to the you know Bugatti for the 1920s, presumably that's quite a high maintenance, literally a high maintenance thing to have, because if something falls off it or goes wrong, you can't just nip along to Holford's and get a replacement part. You have to presumably have it made by Bugatti or by some in some workshop that can. So it's it's a labour of love, I'm imagining. Yeah, it is. And actually, it's funnily enough, it's not that difficult to get parts made. Oh, right. There are dozens of uh, small um, operators who specialise in complicated bits of old cars. And it's actually a, uh, one of the nice things. It's, it's sometimes easier to restore a 1920s Bugatti that was hand-built in period than a 1950s uh, Ford Zephyr 6, which was built by in a factory with huge machines that have long since been lost and, and broken up. And then you, you've, you, you've got more recent cars in, in 1980s vehicles. You, you drove at, in, uh, at Le Mans. So, uh, so are, you, are you taking big risks when you're driving in these sort of events that you drive in, would you think? I don't think... Uh, I think they're marginally safer than Class A drugs. How about that? Was a, a sort of concept. You, you are not nearly excited enough because catamarans are awesome. But do you know why they are awesome? Then you would realize how catamarans have far more applications than the classic image of a high-speed vessel. And today we talk about the unique physics of catamarans and why that makes them great. All right, we've got well, your next wonder. It keeps us in the same sort of area, certainly in terms of speed, because it's Concorde. 
Well, I thought that really is one of the, the extraordinary wonders of the modern world and has a particular, there's something almost sad about the fact that it's one of those areas where we've sort of, it's been and gone, actually. And I, people talk about uh, having supersonic, coming back to supersonic uh, aircraft, but uh, it seems less and less likely. I think uh, now the way we're all thinking Concorde is something that we never will see again. And the funny thing is that it feels still very modern, but there's a generation who never even saw it fly. Sure. So we better remind them that uh, I think Concorde first flew in 1969, had quite a, a long berth. It was created by uh, Britain and France uh, cooperating. So that, that takes us back, obviously. Uh, and uh, we won't see that again. <laughs> but that, I mean, that wasn't easy in those days. Uh, um, even even how to spell it was a subject of governmental uh, interference. And in, in the end, it was allowed to have an E on the end so the French could pronounce it the same way as we were going to pronounce it. Um, it was going to be a supersonic twice, uh, more than twice the speed of sound. Uh, so you could uh, halve the time to cross the Atlantic and other long uh, journeys like that going to be a huge success. But in the end, I mean, it's, it's in, in, in a sense, it's a wonder, but it was a wonder it ever got made because it was one of those projects that I think it was started with 70 million pounds it was going to cost to make. And it in the end took 1.3 billion and they only sold uh, Concords to British Airways and Air France. And, um, and it, it was economically a complete washout. And they could really only run it to two or three places because uh, they couldn't run it over too much land mass with the sonic booms so yes it was it was too noisy too expensive and but as you say fantastically difficult to get it to work because it it was so fast it heated up um to an extraordinary extent yeah no it's uh, quite remarkable and <laughs> they would think you were completely mad if you started suggesting it now to any government well i think i think the things that worked against it was that uh, it was just as a there were separate developments of larger aircraft that took more and more people, so that made it much cheaper. Yeah. Uh, fuel was going up in price, so it became more expensive. And um, and it was there a certain sort of um, resistance from America that you know because this was developed in in Europe, they weren't eager yeah, to open so up their airports to. to no, that. that's right. I mean, they could only um, they really only got it into uh, New York, didn't they? Mm. So I think they only made about twenty of them in the end, which for that amount of money. But you, you like obviously you're keen on speed. You're keen on innovation and uh, design and uh, art and science coming together. Uh, did it ever feature in your life? Did you and Pink Floyd zoom across the Atlantic in Concord from time to time? Yes, we certainly did. It seemed absolutely obligatory. So it's Pink I, I... Floyd and and David Frost and a few uh, you know rich business people. Um, was it an enjoyable experience? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, positively magical. You know, it was a three-hour trip to New York. We did it a few times when when we were touring in America and there was, I had one occasion where they wanted me to go and do a TV show in America to promote something and flew me there and back Concord. I still have the checkbook cover that they give you when you fly Concorde. Oh, dear. They We're going to keep explaining this to younger people. It's Concorde. It's a checkbook. <laughs> 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 but it's quite, it's quite nice that you've still got it. <laughs> well, absolutely. It's a very <laughs> valuable item now, even though I haven't got a checkbook. The world is about to become a smaller place. 
soon you'll be able to travel a mile. Every three seconds. Well over 20 miles in just one minute. The phenomenal Concorde from British Airways. Let's get on to your next wonder, which is cinema. Um, so you've, you've mentioned there's a, there was cinematic quality to uh, some of your performances, but presumably this is a, a wider love of film. Yeah, I, I just think it, it, when looking for wonders of the modern world, um, cinema is a, a pretty broad brush, because, but it encompasses the, the amazing journey from early movie uh, cine cameras all the way through to the digital world now. Just extraordinary now what we have to entertain us. I mean, as I say, cinema is a funny word because it sort of takes you back to uh, the 50s and Odeons and all the rest of it. But now we're all uh, glued to our home cinemas and uh, watching, uh, watching the whole series of films night after night. It's extraordinary compared to uh, where we were when I well when I was a kid. But as far as cinema is concerned, is there a golden age of film that you are attracted to, or are you just champing at the bit to get back into a cinema to see this year's Oscar winners or this year's BAFTA winners? No, I'm not desperate to get back into uh, into the cinemas. I, I suppose, but I. I've really enjoyed these these sort of series, whether it's uh, something like The Crown. I mean, I think that's the thing that's so impressive is that this is not Hollywood, but uh, but the well, the budget and the the expertise absolutely is. So it's the and again, are you drawn to the technicalities of it? The 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 way you're apparently looking at a moving image, but it's made up of lots of single frames strung together or now digitally uh, yeah. reconstituted. No, I, I, and it's interesting when you when you are watching movies now, how old-fashioned old movies now look. The sets on a 50s film are so sort of obvious. It's quite extraordinary the way we now expect a far more sophisticated visual experience. But there's something uh, of a delight in watching, let's say, an epic film from that era when you know they have had to assemble uh, 500 people from the locality and dress them up in order to create that effect. Whereas nowadays they can assemble two people and then digitally rework them all and it looks like a crowd. It's 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 effective, but just merely knowing that it's easy to do yes. or easier to do makes it less satisfying in a way. I d yeah, I, I think... I don't think one necessarily chooses between between them. You can enjoy both. It's like a black and white movie. I mean, in a way, the black and white movie is a, a nonsense. But uh, when when color is when color is available, but uh, it's a different experience, I suppose. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. We're coming now to your last uh, wonder. And um, at one stage in, 
in preparing for this uh, this interview, this discussion, this podcast, you had a provisional list of wonders, which you've pretty much stuck to. But Stonehenge was on your list, and then it's gone off again. And I'm, I'm disappointed because I like Stonehenge. I like ancient monuments. And of course, it would be a, it would have been an unfair but a handy way of discussing the film. Uh, this is Spinal Tap with a member <laughs> of Pink Floyd. I, I, it's very hard to make any sort of connection between the two, but uh, because they because the, the disastrous use of a model of uh, Stonehenge in this is Spinal Tap. I don't know if that's what you had in mind when you were selecting Stonehenge. Uh, no, it wasn't. I I did think that that was a there was an element of a connection there, <laughs> but I felt that. Um, since we were looking for modern wonders, Stonehenge didn't really qualify, but <laughs> it did seem to have got left out of every other list of ancient yes. monuments. Yeah. And I felt that perhaps uh, it was overruled. It was an early form of Brexit and <laughs> um, therefore uh, not included, uh, which which seemed a shame. You can do an early form of all sorts of things with uh, Stonehenge. I've, I've I've made a film about it, re- uh, you know, a documentary about it recently. It's probably already out of date because something new is always coming along. They're now fairly confident it was built, it was set up actually in uh, on a hillside in Wales first, or a big, a big chunk of, it, and then and then brought brought over to the, its site. So what, and, and not stolen, not not a war, but the people who built it thought, oh, we've got a better site in what's now Wiltshire, but uh, would have been I'll just t- another t- bit of countryside. What, the idea of stealing Stonehenge <laughs> sounds <laughs> a bit far-fetched. Well, you know, people immediately say, oh, it should be should be restored to Wales, but of course it's, it's where it's supposed to be because that's where the people who built it wanted it to be, and they keep rechanging it and moving around, and it's a burial site. And it was the last flowering of the sort of Stone Age before uh, the people who built it were rather swept away by um, by people with with better technology, um, unfortunately for them. Um, but anyway, you, but Stonehenge is not on your list, so we can't discuss Stonehenge. Uh, but your last, what is your last wonder? Oh well, I decided to put in something sort of practical, and I chose um, an Indian takeaway, probably a chicken madras, because I thought that is a truly wonderful thing. And it's just about the only food or meal that can actually genuinely be transported over vast distance and still be as good as when it left the light of Kashmir or whatever, yes. it, whatever your local... Or Kashmir itself. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> um, because just thinking about it, there's just nothing else that will travel that well yes no i hadn't i hadn't realized that was your point about this but you're absolutely spot on um virtually all um indian uh, using a very general term i think an awful lot of it is made by people who come from bangladesh but uh, um or or any part of that part of the world yeah that do, it all does work i mean the one i think always really fails is pizza a delivered pizza but i quite like a pizza if it's if I'm one minute away from the guy who's made it, but if I'm 20 minutes away from the guy who made it and then the guy on the, with the, the scooter to bring it to you, it's all soggy and horrible. And you might as well yeah. have made your own bit of bread Absolutely. and cheese. Absolutely. I've no idea why people think pizza's a great sort of takeout meals. And, and nothing uh, from any of the great sort of Michelin chefs travels particularly well. But you really could. You And it's a pity the airlines don't take it more seriously because it's, it's ideal airline food, of course, as well. 
Oh, of course. So now I now I get it. You, your ideal journey is on Concord with, um, <laughs> with <laughs> chicken madras, or um, yeah. I'd, I'd go for chicken tikka or chicken, um, you know, tandoori chicken. But it's a different part of uh, the Indian subcontinent. But uh, they also that also does pretty well. I'd say it's. Uh, I mean, it's sometimes said to be our national dish, a British national dish, and it's yes. not always clear how much of what we call Indian food was actually developed in India and how much has just been developed by people here uh, to try and work out what British people uh, want to eat. Um, there's, there's a dispute about all those various things. Yes, there are lots of stories about uh, dishes that were made up on the spot. Chicken tikka masala, I think, is the one particularly is believed not to exist outside the UK. Yeah, I, I, there's a story I think the, um, the hairy bikers uh, dug up that uh, it was some, the, the person giving this evidence, as it were, said it was his, it was his father who was uh, uh, somebody came in demanding a bit of sauce in the Glasgow restaurant. And uh, uh, he said, all right, well, I'll stick that. If you think the chicken, the chicken tikka is too uh, dry, I'll shove it in some tomato soup and yes. a few, few herbs in. And he gave it a name. And that's alleged to be the origin of that dish. Yeah. But if it's not that, it's... Um, it, it certainly something like that must have occurred to, to try and appeal to l late night uh, <laughs> diners in uh, in British restaurants who aren't always the um, politest of people, I suppose. India, the Maharaja's table laden with dozens of dishes. <laughs> a little lamb biryani, sir, or how about a delicate spinach curry or pork vindaloo? This rare gathering of princes and princesses would be surprised to learn just how much the world has been influenced by their cooking. Well, that's a suitably <clears throat> high point to uh, to <laughs> come to a climax to your um, your wonders of the world, uh, Nick. I what I have to do is uh, to come up with the, the wonder of wonders. What is the of all the things you have come up with? And it's a difficult choice to make. Really, it it always is. But I think uh, what will be satisfying, since as I've been talking to somebody, a member of such an important band, I think your wonder of wonders, I think it's, it's charming that you've selected somebody else from the music industry. So I think I'll make uh, Bob Dylan uh, your wonder of wonders. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you very much uh, for, for join, joining me, uh, Nick Mason, for your seven wonders, uh, your wonder of wonders being Bob Dylan. Nick Mason, thank you very much. Thank you. This is a Stakhanov production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the ACAST Creator Network. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.